welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, episode 16, a special episode I'm very excited about, where we'll interview Yukon First Nations leader Bill Weber. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. Before we begin, we should also say that due to COVID-19, we're doing this interview remotely. So apologies in advance for any sound issues. Pascal is literally in her closet doing this interview. Today, we are honored to have Bill Weber as our guest. In addition to being a well-known community leader involved in organizations such as the Skookum Jim Friendship Center, he was part of the Kwanlin Dunn First Nations team that published the recent book, Our Story in Our Words, which is just a fantastic piece of work. Highly recommended that you, uh, that you get it and read it. Bill, before we begin, could I ask you to introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background, including how you came to be involved in the Our Story in Our Words book project? Yes, um, thank you, uh, Keith and Pascal. Um, yes, uh, my indigenous name is uh, Yonat Plush, and I'm a descendant of the Tagish Kwan from the Marsh Lake area in Yukon, and a beneficiary and member of the Kwan and Dun First Nation. I was born and raised in Whitehorse. I've seen many changes in our fair city. I've had an extensive career in numerous capacities with all levels of government, and the private sector. With respect to Kwanlandun First Nation, I have served as elected councillor, administrator, and chair of the Elders Council. Additionally, chaired the ratification process for the Kwanlandun land claim. I was asked to serve on the Kwanlandun First Nation Book Technical Review Committee as an elder of the First Nation, and uh, this project has been in the works for the past 10 years now. Well, Bill, uh, 10 years of work sure paid off. It's a fantastic, uh, fanta- it's not only a great read, it's visually beautiful. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Pascal, would you like to kick off with the first question for Bill? Absolutely. So the first part of our interview is going to focus on the book, Our Story in Our Words. Bill, why do you think it was important to produce a book like this? It's uh that really was missing in our our documentation of uh, who we are and uh, where we come from. And uh, we always thought it was important for us to tell our story, and uh, particularly for our young people. The uh, Indigenous people have really been left out of the Yukon history in the schoolrooms and everywhere else. Um, It's been mainly about the newcomers to the Yukon that started with the Klondike Gold Rush. It is so wonderful to finally document part of the history of the indigenous people that have occupied this part of the Yukon for thousands of years. And uh, as part of the land claims negotiations agreement that was reached, we were able to do the the necessary work to begin to research and document the indigenous history of the Kwanlandun. That's really incredible. It looks like the book was a true team effort. I understand that over 200 Kwanlin Dunn community members participated over a number of years. Could you tell us a little bit about the team and the process you went through to produce the book? Yes, um, it was uh, it was an amazing uh, project right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, some of the, the staff that were involved uh, changed a little bit and uh, some came back to the project and some left. but. You know, it's been uh, developed for, for quite a while. And uh, the team included uh, several elders and uh, two Kwanlandun elected councillors. 
Support staff led and facilitated by archivist Linda Johnson. And in addition to researching the, the records kept by Kwanandan First Nation and other First Nation organizations, such as Shown FM and CYFN, and the White Horse Museum, it was really about reaching out to the community for input of family photos and stories. Bill, one thing that struck me as I read it was that it wasn't just interesting written history, which of course it was, but that the book was, was very striking visually. You know, for example, there were lots of photos. There were those decorative designs inspired by pre-Gold Rush era First Nations art. And then also, of course, the text was translated into multiple First Nations languages with lots of background for the reader on those languages and, and their differences. So maybe tell us a little bit about why it was that you decided to put so much focus into, into these aspects of the book. Yes, there was actually a lot of thought put into, into that. And um, it, there was a serious think about, okay, well, how are we going to use this for our our uh, up-and-coming generations and and uh, what message for the youth. And so clearly we wanted the, uh, the languages uh, to be front and center in the book. And uh, so we've got both translations and, and some of the stories that we'd like to see continue. And, you know, we captured some of the stories, but uh, uh, we captured a few of the key ones that people... Uh, share with their children and grandchildren right now. And so I think, uh, you know, that through colonialism and as a res residential school, the use of First Nation languages was seriously impacted. Since language is such an important part of who we are, it was agreed that First Na Nation languages should be a key focus. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the most incredible parts of the book. Um, I know the book came for you after many years of working with the community, but was there anything new that you learned while working on the book? Well, I think one of the key lessons uh, I learned, I think, while working on the book was to always ensure you're able to document your your history. Otherwise, somebody else will write your story. Yeah, that's exactly right. Maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, how... How's the reaction been from the Kwanlin Dunn community, you know, youth elders and the community more generally to the book? And how has it changed how they think about their own history? It's uh, It's been incredible. Uh, the feedback that we're getting and uh, and even the, the academics like yourself, you know, the feedback on on how the book was put together and and um, the uh, the youth, they they're excited about it because it's you know, it's a, a good reference uh, material, and it it really captures the spirit of the First Nation and uh, the elders as well. They like to see those documented and and passed. And, and we included uh, a lot of other elders that uh, you know, like Angela Sidney, wasn't really a a Kwan and Dunn First Nation member, but we wanted to capture those kind of stories and. People really appreciated that, and uh, we certainly appreciate all the the positive feedback from the write-ups in the newspaper by yourself and others, and uh, it's just been uh, very positive so far. 
Yeah, now you raise a really interesting point about language and also about youth. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about what the First Nations doing to 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 build the language and work with the young people in this area? There's a, there's a lot of things happening at our and and I know we've always struggled. We wanted to actually establish our own uh, school system, and I think that's happening in some of the other First Nations. But one and done has been doing a lot with. Uh, Passing on the culture of uh, of uh, dance, forming a dance group, and uh, you know uh, a lot of focus and importance being placed on on uh, language and and revival of the language. Well, that's really amazing, Bill. Um, for now, let's change gears a little bit and go back 120 years to the gold rush because we'd love to get your perspectives on that. So many history books are written from the Stampeder point of view, often totally leaving out the First Nations perspective. If a Kwanlandun young person was here today and asked you, what was the gold rush and what happened in those days, how would you describe it to them? Well, I, I'm i not an expert on the, uh, the gold rush, but, uh, you know, I, I've heard a lot of stories from elders and, and you know, uh, they talked about some of the impacts that that happened, uh, you know, with uh, thousands and thousands of uh, stampeders coming through the Yukon, and uh, and the effects it had on the the communities, especially the ones along the right of way. In other words, river corridors and the other trails that come into the Yukon. But uh, you know, the uh, the elders talked about the uh, the impacts even on on their hunting and fishing camps. They'd, you know, go to go out to one of their, their camps and, and hear their soldiers living on their their campsite and even perhaps uh, using their using them for firewood. And, uh, you know, some negative things like that happen. And, uh, and even though the uh, First Nation people always welcomed the newcomers, there was a lot of impacts like that. And, Things like diseases, uh, you know, smallpox, measles, uh, mumps, different diseases, and uh, flu, flu epidemics happening, and and uh, things that the patient people didn't didn't have uh, resistance to because they weren't exposed to those germs previously. So uh, that's the kind of stories that we hear. And even uh, when the dredges started up and and creating the uh, the uh, sludge in the in the water, uh, people felt that the the fish were being impacted, and uh, you know there was a lot of things like that, and and even the game places where people usually went to hunt that were fairly close to their to where they were living, there would be uh, the the game would be all uh, whittled down. There wouldn't be too many, too much game left nearby, so they would have to go further to to do their hunting. So there was a lot of things like that, that stories like that that people uh, have passed on. Yeah. So Bill, we uh, earlier in the podcast episodes, we've been reading a little bit from uh, the book by Tap and Adney, who was a journalist from New York, who was one of the Stampeders, and. Basically, as they floated down the Yukon River, they always had a rifle in the front of the boat and would take pot shots at anything that moved, uh, talking about having boiled loon for lunch and so on. 
And that must have had a huge impact. And it's interesting you talk about the dredges now that I think about it. If if you were a First Nations person back in those days and you went to a you know a valley around Dawson that you were used to hunting in, and suddenly there was a huge, you know, 200 foot long dredge ripping up the whole valley, it would it would seem like uh, would seem completely unexpected, like something had landed from another planet. Uh, hard to imagine. Um, but I, I want to ask you a little bit about the about the the disease because thinking back to my history school here in Whitehorse when I was younger, I don't remember that ever really being taught at all in the schools. And yet the recent research I've seen show, you know, many of those diseases, smallpox, measles, influenza, uh, had an impact on First Nations communities that was far, far worse even than this terrible pandemic we're living through now. You know, people of all ages, young, um, you know, middle-aged elders died in significant numbers. It must have been devastating. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you heard from from your from your elders over the years uh, about this impact on the First Nations peoples? Well, you know, it's a fairly well-known story about the uh, the chief at uh, at Moosehide. You know, like you could talk to the people in in Dawson about that, but that their chief decided they better move out of the community because of the uh, the impacts that it was having on the, the people, and they they even uh, they were worried about losing their culture, and so they they actually traveled to uh, places in Alaska, transfer their their songs and and some of their stories so that they would be preserved for future generations, and so the chief felt those those impacts and could foresee that things were happening like that. So they actually started that distant community, you know, like, I mean, it's just down the river from Dawson, but created another community so that he could protect the people. But uh, it's it's stories like that that, that uh, you know, we heard over the years. Another story, I guess you could, uh, and you could speak to the Taan people about that. You know, their, their chief, the government, to get a message to the king that the government and ask them to let the king know that uh, these things were happening to the and uh, they wanted to uh, start some kind of discussions about you know a, a land claim so that was years that was 1902 I believe that was yeah it's quite a remarkable letter really I was reading it the other day Pascal and I were and uh, what also struck me was the response from Ottawa when it ultimately came, you know, it, in terms of support for the, 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 the First Nation, it was much, much less than Chief Jim Boss had asked for. And, and on the land side, of course, just a tiny fraction. And it, it really, I guess my question is, how does that, you know, when you write away to the king and you get that kind of answer a year or two later, you know, what does that do? <laughs> I mean, that must have had a huge impact on uh, trust in the government. And, uh, um, you know, that, that's a long-term thing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, clearly, it must have been seen as just uh, ignoring their their plight, really. And uh, I think a lot of those incidents like that did get a mistrust, and uh, which continued for many years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of the attention during the Klondike Gold Rush and most of the sort of stories today focus around the Dawson City area, around the Boomtown. Uh, but you mentioned before we started recording that some of your ancestors, some of your ancestors came from around Marsh Lake in the Tagishquan area. How did the gold rush affect these people being on 
really the the highway to the gold rush, as it were. In terms of the uh, the Tagish Kwan, they were right in the front and center of all these gold seekers heading up to the the, the gold fields, and um, I think the you know they still had a, a bit of their supplies here, so it wasn't impacting the the food market there so much as as it was in further down the river and. You know, when uh, the Stampeders started running low, they couldn't go to a store and, and replenish their supplies. So the First Nations people were were trying to help out, and uh, they were able to provide them uh, preserved uh, fish and uh, and uh, fresh fresh meat, you know, by uh, going and hunting. So that added to the pressures as well of, the pressures on the uh, the game management. Absolutely. From some of our reading that we've done from accounts of the Stampeders, it's pretty clear that not only was there First Nations people helping in terms of giving actual food or equipment or hunting equipment to the Stampeders, but also uh, this exchange of traditional knowledge about the river freezing up and how to live in the Yukon. Could you speak about how First Nations people and their traditional knowledge really help the Stampeders on their way to their new land? Well, yes, clearly they they did provide some direction to them because, of course, when the Stampeders were coming in, a lot of them were ill-prepared with, uh, you know, there was no uh, maps that they could go and purchase or anything, so they would end up heading down the wrong tributaries and things like that. So the the uh, Nation people... Uh, them a hand in terms of telling them where the, the uh, stampeders were heading and and how to get there on the river and and warn them as well about uh, I heard stories about Miles Canyon they tried to warn them about fast water through the canyon and how dangerous it was. yeah the uh, the accounts in Tabernadney's book at Miles Canyon are, are kind of shocking and and how unprepared and people were running boats through there with no water knowledge at all. Um, quite alarming. Um, wanted to also ask you about Skookum Jim, uh, Bill, because of course everybody knows about Skookum Jim and the discovery of gold, but most people do not know about all the things he did after the gold rush, including the Skookum Jim Friendship Center, which uh, continues to do great work today, um, you know, thanks to you and the other folks who volunteer there. Um, what, what else should people know about Skookum Jim? Well, they, they knew that, uh, you know, that of course, like his history of packing the uh, the heavy packs over the, the pass, and you know he was a very uh, strong person. He also seemed to have a a good. Uh, he was a, quite a visionary, and um, in terms of the uh, setting aside a, a well that would protect some of his money to uh, to help people that in need. And so he knew that uh, the First Nation people were impacted, and and they didn't all gain any wealth from uh, the the gold fields in Dawson, and uh, they were just getting the downside of it. And so he uh, he left money, and he had pretty strong individuals like the uh, the bishop of the church, and uh, also the uh, the commissioner of the Yukon. He he asked them to. Uh, to be the uh, executors of his will. And so uh, still today, there's still a, a fund being managed by uh, 
by those two uh, two named in the in the uh, in the will, and so uh, that that legacy continues. And uh, Jim uh, had had an idea that that was something that was going to be needed, and and uh, there it is. Yeah, it's quite amazing. You know, the gold rush, there are so many get rich quick and spend it all fast stories. You know, not many Stampeders even made it back to Seattle with money in their pockets. And if they did, it was gone pretty quickly. So Skookum Jim is one of the very rare figures that that really left a long term, you know, positive legacy after the gold rush in that sense. Um, maybe for our listeners who don't live in Whitehorse, could you just tell us what you know, what the Skookum Gym Center does these days to help the community? Oh, they do some incredible work. They, they work a, a lot with, uh, with youth and uh, with uh, training. And um, they try and um, have support programs for um, moms and babies and, you know, uh, making sure that the, uh, the young moms know about nutrition and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, just tremendous work that Skookum Jim uh, does, and they, it manages some uh, training programs for uh, Department of Education and uh, and uh, supports students going to uh, to university. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, good work that's always being done out of Skookum Jim. Wow, it does sound like Skookum, Skookum Jim just had a tremendous foresight into what was needed both when he was alive and what was going to be needed in the future. It's really amazing that his legacies continued like that. Yes, he talked about uh, the needy people and uh, that's who he wanted to try and help, deserving people. One thing we found as we researched for this podcast is that the, the Klondike Gold Rush still seems to fascinate a lot of people around the world today. But a lot of those narratives that show up in pop culture focus on it's sort of one big fun adventure with husky dogs and mountains and dance hall girls. How do you hope people start to think about the Klondike Gold Rush differently in the future? Um, I think we don't mind uh, people respecting the gold rush uh, and the, the gold seekers, but we just hope that they could think about the negative effects that that those kind of uh, developments have on, uh, you know, the, the many prospectors and uh, the impacts on the local people and resources. And so uh, they need to also think about the people that, that were here and uh, the, the culture and uh, the kind of lives that they lived and, uh, and uh, show some respect for that. Well, Bill, that, uh, I think that's a message that'll, that'll really hit home with our, with our listeners. Um, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation, but, but uh, before we go, is there a question we should have asked you, but we didn't? Any final thoughts? No, actually, I think you, uh, you covered it very well, uh, Keith and uh, Pascal, and uh, I certainly appreciate the, uh, the opportunity again and uh, look forward to hearing the, uh, the podcast when you're, when you're done. Yeah, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Uh, to say thank you, the podcast will be making a small donation in your honor to the Skookum Gym Friendship Center. And again, to all of our listeners, the book is our story in our words, and it is really just a tremendous read. I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to learn more about the Yukon in general. And and you can uh, you can get it uh, either at uh, you know bookstores in Whitehorse um, or on Amazon. Well, um, 
everyone, that wraps up our special interview episode with Bill Weber. We really appreciate, Bill, you coming, coming in to talk to us remotely uh, and uh, hope the sound quality worked out for everyone. Okay, that was really awesome. I think our listeners are going to love it. So really, thanks a lot, Bill. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy your studies, Pascal. Pleasure well, talking to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you too. If you like this episode, you know, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and information and a link to the book, uh, and make a donation. And that's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the cost of equipment and hosting. We did not do this podcast to get rich, but as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub stake back. Mm-hmm.